everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. And today we're going to talk about the national debt and really looking forward to getting into this. There was a great video that was put on, you know, it was put out. I saw it on YouTube, but it was from John Oliver and he did a piece on his HBO show. Um, what is it called? I think last week with John Oliver and he goes over the national debt. And man, it is just loaded with so many things to talk about. And I, I really want to break it down with you. I mean, there's some things he said, I think, that are right on target. There are other things he said that I think are just flat out wrong, in some cases, lies. And I want to point those out as well. But it's just a really fascinating topic. And it's definitely aligned with what we talk about here in our podcast. You know, we're always talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And debt plays a role. Like, not only debt, with government, but also debt in our personal lives. So we're going to break down the video with John Oliver. We'll talk a little bit about some personal finance tips that I'd be happy to share with, you know, stories about debt and ways to overcome debt. And we'll even talk a little bit about debt with our local government here in the city of Poway, particularly with our school district, the Poway Unified School District, and some of the, the things they've gotten involved with, with debt. Um, you know, because debt can, if it's managed well, debt can be a good thing. But if it's managed poorly, debt can crush you, <laughs> whether you're a government a entity or whether you're an individual or whether you're a business. It has to be something that's carefully managed. So anyways, let's kind of get into this. Now, first of all, who in the heck is John Oliver? You might be wondering that. Well, John Oliver um, has his own show on HBO. This guy's a comedian. He's a social commentator. He's a very smart man. Um, he was a former writer on The Daily Show that was hosted by Jon Stewart. And so he has these video pieces he does, you know, quite often. They're usually about 20, 30 minutes long, and they're always very well done. But they're always done from more of a leftist perspective, more of a progressive perspective. That's how he definitely lines up on a wide range of issues. And we saw some of that happen or some of that come forward in his conversation about the debt. So let's before we really let's get started. Let's at least take a look at some of the things, you know, at least a little bit of the segment. And I'm going to go through pieces of the segment. We'll stop a few times. We'll offer some comments. And, you know, again, I look forward to your thoughts and comments on this as we follow this on social media. So here we go. I'm going to try following uh, the idea here, sharing the screen and make sure I can do this correctly. So let's uh, share the screen and we are going to share that screen and then we're going to go over here and we're going to share the audio. And so let's get started. Bada boom. And so we're sharing this screen over here and let's hide. Whoa. Let's hide this. Okay. And off we go. Moving on. Our main story tonight concerns the national debt, the world's most boring $28 trillion. And <laughs> right. I know just saying $28 trillion might sound confusing. How much is that exactly? Well, to put it one way, it's $28 trillion. To put it another way, it's 28 million millions. To put it a third way, it's an absolute fuck ton of money. But regardless, the national debt is a complete obsession in this country. And he's right. It's a ton of money. And it's it's so hard to fathom how much money that really is. Um, but it's it's a burden on our economy. And I and I want to break this down now. But before we get into the video and really go through it in detail, I just want to set this up and let you know where I where I stand on this. Now, first of all, what's the debt and the deficit? Let's define terms. So 
the deficit is the annual amount that the federal government is in the red. You know, they're they're essentially spending more than they take in. They have a deficit at the end of the year. It's no different than a personal budget or a business that spends more than they bring in on whatever given time frame, a monthly time frame, maybe an annual time frame. So the deficit is the, on a per annum basis, the 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 negative um, for that year. But the debt is the accumulation of all of the deficits over the course of time. So the debt is like looking at your credit card bill. It's the amount of debt that you've built up over a period of time. And the now granted, the math doesn't exactly work perfectly because sometimes, you know, like even Clinton, when he when he ran surpluses, he still increased the debt. So there's some subtle differences. But generally speaking, the debt is the is the aggregate total of all of the annual deficits. So, you know, this video, you're going to we're going to get into this and you're going to see that John John Oliver doesn't I don't think take this seriously enough. To me, this is just utterly irresponsible. This is just an example of our politicians in Washington, D.C. that are spending like drunken sailors, essentially spending to stroke their constituents, to stroke their donors, to really uh, you know, use their power so they can stay in office. They're, they're spending other people's money like it's going out of style. In my opinion, it's immoral what they're doing, particularly because who's going to pay the bill? This is actually going to be paid for in future generations, whether they're going to actually pay down part of the debt if that's ever even going to happen. But definitely the interest on the debt is a burden every single year. And that's something that's going to be passed on down to future generations. And at some point we have to pay this off at some point it's going to break. And this is, in my opinion, just utterly irresponsible. And I'm not going to point the finger at just the Republicans or just the Democrats. They're both doing it. They're both spending insane amounts of money that we do not have and just essentially putting it on the tab. But the other part of this that really irks me with the national debt is that it's all used as a justification to spend more money on more government initiatives, more government programs that end up what they do is limiting our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They shift burdens onto other people. In some cases, the policies that come forward from this just really result in more coercion, more control of individuals because it puts the government in a more authoritarian position to have more power. I mean, a great example of this is what we're seeing in the Derek Chauvin trial. The the government has more and more power as a police state. And what they end up doing is becoming too aggressive with that power and actually killing people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner. And I can go down the list. So a lot of times this debt is a justification so they can actually spend more on these policies that put more power in the government and less power over our individual lives. Um, And then on top of it, government spending in many ways sounds like, you know, someone else is spending it, right? It's all coming from us, whether we're paying in taxes or future generations are paying for it. But do you ever notice that the industries where the government spends a tremendous amount of money tend to be the industries that have insane inflation. I mean, a great example is um, 
I mean, let's let's look at housing. I mean, housing is a case where there's subsidized housing and there's all kinds of loan programs that the federal government offers for housing, whether it's for VA lending or the Fannie and Freddie that are buying mortgages. The housing market is heavily subsidized and influenced by government power. But housing prices, especially now, are going through the roof. And it's usually because of government policies that do this, that essentially create excessive demand on the system. And then, oh, by the way, they limit supply. They prevent construction. There are NIMBY laws and zoning and regulations that that really disincentivize or or diminish more construction. And as a result, prices go up. Another great example is higher education. There's so much money being spent not only for you know, tax dollars that are going to colleges and universities, but also all these federally backed loans. And that, by the way, now they're talking about forgiving them. This is creating more and more demand on the system, greater burdens on the system. Some of these universities are having to expand, incur a lot of expenses. They're making, they're raising their tuition. In other cases, they're raising their tuition because they can because there is so much demand and it's fueled by government spending. The, probably the most classic example of this is healthcare. Everyone is upset that healthcare costs too much money. And it does. It's insane how much healthcare costs. But do you notice that, you know, really since World War II, government spending on healthcare keeps going up whether it's in the form of Medicare for seniors that was enacted in the 1960s or Medicaid for for low-income people. But even in a lot of other cases, there's more government money that's being spent on health care. And now with Obamacare involved, which, by the way, is the Affordable Care Act, prices have gone up. So health care now has become less affordable. And so the more government seems to get involved, the more that they spend money in these in these programs, prices tend to go up. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, in a free market where the government is essentially not really involved at all, government spending isn't going to it at all. What we see is greater competition and prices go down. Great examples, LASIK eye surgery. Now, that's a medical cost. But it's usually one that is not covered by most health plans. It's usually considered cosmetic surgery. People pay cash out of pocket for LASIK surgery that essentially corrects your lenses so you don't have to wear glasses or contacts. What's happened with the price of LASIK surgery? Prices have come down and quality has gone up. Contact lenses, prices have come down and quality has gone up because, again, people aren't Depending on third parties, whether it's government or insurance to pay for it, they're paying for it directly. And even outside the scope of healthcare, we can look at consumer electronics like televisions. Look how much less expensive televisions have gotten and how much better they are. It's unbelievable. Almost in every category of consumer electronics and then even clothing and household furnishing, it's amazing how in some segments of our economy, prices have actually come come down. And it's usually in those industries where the government isn't subsidizing it in the first place. In the cases, a lot of these cases are when the government's getting out of the way, and then we can essentially um, buy and sell on a, in a global economy. And then we're able to take advantage of lower prices that actually are good for us. So a lot of, th- I, again, I object to the debt on the, the immorality of it, the 
the um, the burden it's placing on future generations, the fact that the debt is used to create government programs that limit our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and cause industries to see skyrocketing prices. But it's not just that. The debt, the, these insane deficits now, well, even pre-COVID, Trump had them over a trillion dollars. These insane deficits are a terrible, terrible example to the American people. We, you know, we hear so much about wealth inequality and income inequality, and that, yeah, that's a legit issue, and we can break that down. But a lot of it's because people, a lot of people make poor financial decisions. Now, I'm not saying that's the, the, the case for everybody that maybe is in the lower half, but it's certainly true of some. And there is such a consumption economy, a keeping up with the Joneses. You know, everyone wants, you know, like the, the next smartphone. So it's unbelievable how the debt just keeps piling up and we set a terrible example for people. So I know, let me actually, let me switch back to the full screen here. We're, we're going to go back to the share screen in a moment. Come on. I got two monitors here and sometimes I get confused where the mouse is. There it is. Okay. There's me again. So um, yeah, it, to me, it's just a terrible example for the people. Now, the other part of this is, is that as the debt goes up, interest rates, well, interest rates have been low, but interest payments are still a significant chunk of the budget. And generally speaking, on a general trend line, the interest payments every year have been going up. Now, granted, there's a couple of years where there might be some fluctuation where the payment might go down, just depending on certain activities with the marketplace or with interest rates. But still, the the segment or the proportion of the national budget that goes to interest payments is enormous. I mean, it's it's like roughly approaching a half a trillion a year just on the interest. So it's making it so impossible that they're it self-reinforces the problem. The interest on the debt is so high and the interest payment is so significant that they end up just making minimum payments, just like some people do with credit cards. So the, the, the principal on the debt never goes down. And as a result, those interest payments keep getting bigger every year. It's irresponsible. And what it does is, is it squeezes out other parts of the budget. Because more and more has to go to interest on the debt, which means there's less money available for other things. So and then in the end, of course, this always ends up as a justification for more taxation. You know, we need to now tax the rich, tax business people, tax other. You know, they're talking about a mileage tax on cars. I mean, we can go down the list, all these other tax increases. It just becomes justification for them to want to take more money which ends up violating our inalienable rights. So it's the debt is, is something to me that is a very serious issue. It's not just a serious financial and economic issue. It's a a serious moral issue. And it's a serious leadership issue that neither party really cares. None of them really care about it. You know, the Republicans will give lip service to it when a Democrat is in the White House. The Republicans suddenly discover that they need to be fiscally responsible. But when a Republican's in office, they spend like drunken sailors. And then when a Democrat is in office, they don't seem to give much concern to the debt either. Now, granted, under Clinton, there was a surplus. 
But that was mostly as a result of a booming economy during the whole explosion of the dot-com bubble as that grew in the late 90s. I mean, it was surging amounts of revenue that came in in the, set, in the latter half of the 1990s. That's what fueled the surpluses. It wasn't because they cut spending. So it, to me, it, it's, a, it's a very serious moral issue. Now, let's, let's get into the, the video a bit. And, you know, the beginning of the video, it starts off with um, John Oliver you know, kind of mocking the whole idea that it's being uh, compared to a credit card bill. And to me, that is a realistic and fair comparison because as you, as you accumulate more and more debt, you are creating a burden that has to be paid off. You are adding more interest to the load and that interest, that interest payment keeps going up as a general rule. There might be some exceptions, but it's not unlike a credit card bill, just to put it in layman's terms. He was mocking it. You know, it's not like someone's going to show up with a baseball bat and want to cap your knees and demand payment. That might happen in some other way. We don't know. But at some point, you know, we've got to pay the piper. At some point, you have to resolve debt. And if the debt isn't resolved, what ends up happening is the debt gets shifted and burdens other people. You can't just sort of wave your hand and think that it's going to go away. Now, granted, in John Oliver's video, he made some good comments. He said that a lot of people think China is the, the main holder of our debt, and they're not. You know, Two-thirds of our debt are owned by the American people. They own treasury bills. And I think in a lot of cases, that's really held by Wall Street, a lot of institutional investors. But even amongst foreign nations, China is even number one. Japan is. And John Oliver, to his credit, pointed that out. But let's let's really kind of get into this segment here. And I want to jump ahead here to the 515 mark. And he starts making some interesting comments. And I let's get here. We'll start there. It is. And while the debt is often talked about as being something that we're running up with new spending, the truth is, before the pandemic hit, most of our debt was the result of long, steady growth in programs that we'd long ago committed to, like Medicare and other entitlements. So we are very much getting stuff. So this was a nice revelation here from John, John Oliver. He admitted that a great portion of the debt is from Medicare. And he said, and other entitlements, which really is Social Security and Medicaid, but really Social Security and Medicare are huge drivers of our debt. Now, some of our friends on the left, our progressive friends have often made the comment that, that Social Security and Medicare are not responsible for our debt. But they are, because those programs are cash flow negative. Those programs bring in less money than they spend. And yeah, the surplus for those has been borrowed because of the national debt. It's been borrowed. But those programs in and of themselves are fiscally unsustainable. They're a a, a significant portion of how the debt is accumulated comes as a result of those programs. So, you know, good for you for at least mentioning that. Because, you know, if you look at the federal budget, Entitlement spending is, gosh, I'm not sure what the percentage. I know entitlement spending and military is roughly three quarters of the budget. So and and Social Security is over a trillion dollars a year. Medicare is, if I recall, is like about a half a trillion a year, maybe more. 
those two together are probably close to half of the federal budget. So, yeah, good for you for calling that out. So but he goes into this piece next where he starts saying, well, but, you know, if we're spending it on good things, then it's okay." You know, and that's what he's trying to make a case here with Medicare, that if they spend money on Medicare, then then that's a good thing. So let's let me jump ahead in this video to the 617 mark. And debt to build a factory that creates jobs and increases economic output is probably a smart investment, especially if it's one that makes this actual pillowcase depicting a nude. Nick- yeah, so he's going on about his Nicolas Cage pillowcase. I mean, I tell you, Oliver is a funny guy. He's witty. He makes these videos a hell of a lot more entertaining than I do. But, you know, he, he makes a comment. Yeah. Like if you're going in debt to build a factory, you know, that, that makes sense, you know. But is that really what America is doing? It, is America going into debt to make a legit investment? I mean, look at the way the government spends the money. We have these these uh, BS wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've got drone wars going on over the Middle East and parts of Africa. And it's not just the Republicans that do it. The Democrats, the Democrats do it, too. In fact, Obama came into office, extended the Iraq war longer than he promised. And then he expanded the Afghanistan war. And then Trump gets into office, says he wants to end these wars. And what does he do? He doesn't end the wars. In fact, he expands the drone war. So insane money being spent on on these wars. Is that a good reason to go into debt to destroy other nations? No way. Now, it's great if you work in the military industrial complex. If you're a, a shareholder of Raytheon, it probably makes good sense. But for everyone else, it's not an investment. And then what else? Like the war on drugs, which I frequently criticize on this podcast. The war on drugs just enables the police to be ultra aggressive, to give them greater powers. I mean, that's how Breonna Taylor died. That's how she was killed is because of the war on drugs. The police showed up at her door. It's questionable if it was a raid or a no-knock raid. But at any rate, the police bust the door down looking for her boyfriend, who, by the way, was her ex-boyfriend at the time who apparently was a drug dealer. They were coming into her house trying to find drugs. There weren't any. She had a new boyfriend. The boyfriend was there. I mean, people are busting down the door, raiding the house. What does he do? He reaches for his gun to defend himself, a natural thing that you'd expect to happen. So the minute he shows a gun, the cops start firing bullets, shooting. Breonna Taylor is dead. Meanwhile, the guy they were after, the police actually already had apprehended him. That happened before the raid of Breonna Taylor's apartment. So is that a good investment? Is that a good reason to go into debt to not just in the isolated case of Breonna Taylor, but there is huge money spent on a police state that that empowers the police, militarizes the police and creates a massive incarceration state. That puts huge numbers of people in jail at far greater percentages of our overall population than any other nation on the planet. And by the way, it typically tends to be disproportionately, you know, people of color and typically men. Which creates a lot of this social unrest and Black Lives Matter and legit reasons to protest. (laughs) Oh, by the way, just as an aside. Our newest president, President Biden, passed the crime bill in the early 1990s. He was the primary driver of it. The author of the bill pushed that forward. It became law. 
which greatly expanded police power and and created a larger incarceration state, which made the problem worse and cost more taxpayer money. Is that a good investment? I mean, we can go down the list of all of other things, corporate bailouts, corporate welfare. If a company is going bankrupt, is it a good investment for taxpayers to bail them out? I don't think so. Because when, I mean, the classic example was for the automobile manufacturers. They were selling it as we're saving jobs. But you know what? If, if those companies were to go out of business, new companies would rise from the ashes. There's the factories don't go away. People, assets would be redeployed. We see probably more innovative companies coming forward. Companies that have a greater in, you know, focus on new technologies and electric vehicles and a lot more than what we're seeing from the big three. Which, by the way, now, as part of Biden's infrastructure bill, he wants to subsidize the auto industry. Essentially more corporate welfare. So who does that help? Now, in a lot of cases, the, the subsidies that go to, to these companies, like in the case of for green technologies, ends up making it less expensive for people to own electric cars. And, you know, mea culpa, we have two of them. I'm a big fan of EVs, but I'll be honest, it makes them a lot more affordable. But still, they don't really cater, certainly not to the lower middle class or the poor. They mostly cater to the upper middle class and the rich. But more importantly, when they talk about these corporate bailouts, they're not, they say they're protecting the workers, but what, you know who they're really protecting? The shareholders. Because if the company goes bankrupt, the shareholders got nothing. But if the company goes bankrupt, those employees, yeah, they'll be disrupted. Yeah, they'll lose their job. But the economy is dynamic. New companies will rise from those ashes and be rebuilt. New industries will form and and people are redeployed in creative ways in this economy. But those bailouts are really to protect Wall Street. But they don't say that. Then other things like the investments, you know, a lot of it's just redistribution. They're just fueling more redistribution so other people can spend. But spending isn't an investment. Spending is spending. So it's a big part of it because you know, normally when you think of investments, there's a return on the investment. But does the federal government ever really get a return on investment? Well, you, if you think they would, if the debt went down, but the debt keeps going up. You know, we might think of our home as a good reason to go into debt. You know, you take out a mortgage, you borrow money. But what happens to your debt with your house? You know, if you plan it properly and you're well managed, you're not doing crazy things with pulling equity out of your house. If you do it the right way, the principal on your debt goes down and the equity on your house goes up. So it ends up being an actually a good investment that has a return on the investment. Does the federal government get a return on their investment? No, they just accumulate more debt. It's not a, it's not, they're not investing in things like, you know, a factory which was demonstrated in the video, or even educated, uh, investing in your own education. Things that can produce an ROI. Investing in assets in, in, in yourself, investing in things that can produce an income, that has an ROI. And then with that return on investment, you can pay down the principal of the debt and then be way ahead as a result. That's not what the federal government does. They sell it as an investment, but it's not. 
It's just an excuse to spend more money to empower politicians to have greater power control over the people and which immorally creates burdens on future generations. And interestingly, a lot of the policies they pass violate our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So anyways, let's, let's go and jump ahead again in this video. I want to go to the, the 710 mark. And he makes a really good comment, I think, about President Reagan. And this, there's a lot of the problem really started with Reagan. So here we are, and let's hit play. He stopped digging. And it is worth taking a moment to look at the history of the debate over the national debt, because the argument the Republicans often make is that they are the responsible ones who want to reduce the debt and rein in spending, whereas Democrats don't give a shit about it and just love recklessly throwing around money. But that story just doesn't match up to reality. Take so he's absolutely right here. You know, the Republicans like to think they're the fiscally responsible ones and the Democrats are the ones on a spending binge. But the reality is both parties are on spending binges. So, you know, again, you know, trust action, not words. Right. You always have to look at what they do, not what they say. Ronald Reagan, he spent years complaining that deficits were a sign that the federal government had simply lost its way. I think the answer to curing uh, there's a segment where he's on the Johnny Carson show. But basically, you know, Reagan was calling out, you know, we need to have a balanced budget and we have to learn to say no, you know, kind of like Nancy Reagan, you know, just say no with the drug campaign. Like, how did that work out, Nancy? Not so well. Um, but this 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 Ronald Reagan, I'll tell you what, when he ran for president in 1980, now, granted, that was before I could vote. But he, in my opinion, said a lot of great things. But when he got into office, he governed very differently. He spent like crazy amounts. He increased spending on on the military, like hand over fist. Tons of money went to the military and he ended up racking up huge deficits. Now, in this video, I'm not going to go through every segment of it one by one. But in the video, John Oliver talks about how Reagan cut taxes and he did. But you know what? Revenue went up every year under Reagan, I think, except for one. So sometimes, you know, when they cut taxes, revenue still goes up. What that tells you is, is that the real problem is the spending. When revenue is going up, spending is going up way the hell faster than, than revenue. Then spending is the problem. And it always is. I mean, if you look at your own personal situation, if you've ever been in debt, for the most part, you know, assuming that you've got a job and you have a, a modest income at, at minimum, usually the problem is overspending. The same thing is true with the federal government. So it, it's, it, Reagan is an interesting case study. So let me jump ahead here to, to, to John Oliver. But he also massively increased defense spending while cutting taxes so that the government took in less money, creating large deficits that wound up. Well, he, the government didn't take in less money. Spending went up every year under Reagan except for one. Excuse me. Excuse me. Revenue went up every year under Reagan, except one. Yeah, they cut tax rates. They did cut tax rates. But, you know, the nature of the economy grew. The economy was booming. I mean, at one point in one of those years, I think the GDP growth rate under Reagan was over 7% in the early 80s. In fact, I think that was the last time it's ever been over 5% for a year that I can recall in the last like 40 years. 
And then the economy, the economy grew because of population growth and there's some inflation. But still, revenue went up every year except for one under Reagan. John Oliver likes to say that it went down, but it didn't. Up tripling the national debt, which I guess in his terms made Reagan America's hottest little slut. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, the national debt tripled under Ronald Reagan. And if you look at the history, just sort of in sweepingly rough terms, the national debt was increased. It was approximately a trillion dollars when Reagan took office. He tripled it. By the time he left in 88, the national debt was about three trillion. Then George H.W. Bush comes in. And I think he increased the debt like maybe one, one and a half trillion. Then Clinton comes in, who they all think was the savior of the balance of the budget. Still, the national debt went up around one and a half or so trillion under Clinton. And then, of course, when Bush got into office, the national debt went up like around five trillion. It got up close to 10 trillion dollars under Bush. Then Obama gets into office. What does he do? He roughly doubles the the budget deficit from about nine or 10 trillion to around 19 trillion. Then Trump gets into office and Trump, who, by the way, said he was going to eliminate the national debt in eight years. At the time, it was like 19 trillion dollars. Total con man move. I'm going to cut not just cut the national debt. I'm going to erase it. It's going to be zero if I'm elected for two terms. What does he do? He starts spending like a drunken sailor and racks up huge amounts of debt. So even when we got to you know pre-COVID times, I think the national debt under Trump was like 24 trillion, right around there, roughly. And then with COVID, it's now up to 28 trillion. And now Biden wants to spend more money. And sure, Biden wants to tax the rich, but Biden's spending proposals are much greater than his revenue generation proposals from tax increases. So they both want to spend money, Republicans and Democrats. They both rack up debt. They get into these battles where they fight with each other and try to say that the other side's the bad guy. But it's all theater. In the end, they both want to spend a ton because that keeps them in power. The more money they spend, the more they're stroking people, the more they're getting support from various constituencies, and the easier it is for them to stay in power and to retain office and be reelected. So now we get into the era of Bush, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., and President Clinton. And let's let's hear from John Stossel. Then Excuse me, John Oliver. These two guys, and between Bush Sr. and Clinton, they more or less did what Reagan had promised to do, cutting spending and raising taxes enough to achieve budget surpluses by the end of the 90s. And the debt was briefly starting to come down until... That's a lie. So they didn't cut spending. Spending went up every year under George H.W. Bush and it went up every single year under President Clinton. So under George H.W. Bush in fiscal year 1990, because, you know, the fiscal year, you know, the elections in 1988, by that point, the 1989 fiscal year budget was already created and passed and actually was started in October 1st of 1988 is when the 89 budget occurred. So most of the time they usually say that the existing president kind of is, is on the hook for that budget. So George H.W. Bush's first budget was in 1990. His spending was $1.252 trillion. It went up every year. And in fiscal year 1993, it was $1.4 trillion. John Oliver says that he cut spending. He didn't. And then even Bill Clinton, 
from fiscal year 94 to fiscal year 2001, it went up every year from 1.461 trillion to 1.862 trillion. And then he says, let me, I'm going to roll this back. This is a key point here that I want to make sure we all understand. And between Bush Sr. and Clinton, they more or less did what Reagan had promised to do, cutting spending and raising taxes right. enough to achieve budget surpluses by the end of the 90s. And the debt was briefly starting to come down until... The debt never came down under Clinton. That is a, a myth that I've heard repeated more times than I can count. If you look at the national debt every year under Bill Clinton... The national debt went up every single year. And I know in four of those fiscal years, he did run a surplus. And I'll give him credit for that. Um, but the debt went up. Now, I know logically that doesn't sound right. And that's what I said in the very beginning. Sometimes the, the annual deficit or surplus doesn't always exactly add up to what, you know, the, the it doesn't perfectly match up with the incremental difference on a year to year basis of what the national debt is. There's more like voodoo going on that I don't really understand. I think a lot of it's because money has to be borrowed from Social Security and there's various rules about how they manage the accounting. But the national debt went up every year under Bill Clinton. What Oliver said is wrong. <laughs> and I want to make sure that we all understand that. So it's then, then he gets into Bush and yeah, Bush exploded the debt, right? The Bush, under Bush, the national debt was roughly about four or five trillion when he got into office. And when he left office, it was like around nine or 10 trillion. So he had doubled the debt. And he, again, in this video, Oliver blames tax cuts. But did you know that uh, if you look at the federal government revenue after the 2003 tax cut by Bush, revenue went up every single year for four straight years. So 2004, revenue went up. 05, it went up further. 06 went up further. 07 went up further. But then in 08, what happened? We had the crash. That had nothing to do with tax cuts. That was completely related to the Federal Reserve and the manipulation of interest rates that fueled the housing bubble. And we can break that down. It wasn't because of the tax cuts. So under Bush, yeah, we had exploding debt. But it wasn't because of the tax cuts, because the revenue kept going up. The reason there was so much debt under George H.W., excuse me, George W. Bush in the 2000 to 2008 timeframe was because of the insane spending. He increased spending on the war on terror, the Department of Homeland Security, on Patriot Act, the National Security Agency, the, you know, the creation of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and the drone war. And the dude just spent like he was, you know, on a binge. But still, revenue went up. So, yeah, the, the under Bush, it, it definitely expanded. But that's because of the insane spending. And part of what John Oliver rightfully points out, that there is hypocrisy. Now, what's interesting is that then Oliver gets into the fact that, you know, when Obama came into office, suddenly the Republicans started changing their tune and they were really upset about debt. You remember, that's what started the whole Tea Party movement. The Tea Party people were like, this is crazy. We got to cut this debt. But then what happened um, once the Tea Party came into office or the Tea Party became a big thing? Well, then what happened? You know, 
they, they put pressure on the Republicans to cut spending. Spending was never cut under the Republicans. So um, what ended up happening is, is then Trump eventually gets into office, starts spending a ton. What happened to the Tea Party? <laughs> they like disappeared. They fell off the face of the earth. So they, the, the, the Republicans have been terrible hypocrites on this. And Oliver rightfully points him out that way because, yeah, Reagan and Bush 41 and George W. Bush and Trump, they spent like insane amounts. But so did Clinton. And so did. So did Obama, Obama, especially really increased spending. Um, so it, it's it's just an interesting thought. Now, what happens in this video goes a little further and. John Oliver starts talking about how we should rethink debt. And his argument was that, you know, it used to be if our national debt exceeded our gross domestic product, then that was a red line. And we've kind of blown past that and the world didn't end. And he thinks that a lot of times these economists really don't understand why it hasn't crashed. And I agree. I, I don't understand it either. The, the behavior that they're doing at the federal government level by printing all this money out of thin air, accumulating more and more of this debt, we should be seeing really high inflation, but we're not. And I don't understand that. It seems to violate everything I was taught in economics. So now they're saying, well, as long as the economy is growing at a faster rate than interest rates are growing, then it makes sense to keep borrowing because the economy is growing faster than that. You know, John Oliver uses an example. If you have a credit card that is has a 3% interest rate, but you're able to use that money, invest it somewhere else and get 5%, then you're ahead plus 2%. In fact, a lot of people are doing that now. That's a big reason why the rich are getting richer is because it's so much cheaper to borrow money. And then they turn around and parlay that into the stock market, which is artificially inflated because of all the spending. And the rich people are able to play the game and make more money. But still, the assumption is by by John Oliver is if, yeah, if the economy is growing faster than the interest rate, then it makes sense to borrow. But it does maybe if you pay the debt down, but then we never do. They just keep spending more and more without being really prudent about it. So um, really, we've been spending tons under Republicans and Democrats. When was the last time the gross domestic product? growth rate was over 5%. I think you have to go to the early 1980s under Reagan. On an Now, certainly there's been some quarters where it's been high, but on an annual basis, it's been not very exciting. Um, very, very few cases above 4% on an annual basis. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule. Most of the time, our federal gross domestic product rate of growth is like one point something, two point something percent maybe three, but rarely is it much above that. And it's because, in my opinion, it's just as they accumulate more and more debt, it squeezes out other money in the economy that could be used for more productive purposes, to be more innovative, to create new industries that can drive growth and higher paying jobs. But they end up burdening the system with all this debt so those politicians can keep spending money to take care of their constituents so they can keep getting reelected. And that's the problem. So and then, then John Oliver says, well, yeah, the minute that the interest rates go up 
and become a larger percentage than our GDP growth rate, then we can make some changes. Then we need to increase taxes or, you know, we don't want to cut spending because we don't want to cut important, you know, spending programs. Of course, there's a ton of spending programs that are immoral in the first place, like the war on drugs and these, inter- these foreign wars and the mass incarceration state and the other things that I talked about. But still, even if the interest rates for the debt became greater than the GDP growth rate, do you really think the federal government would suddenly cut spending? No, they wouldn't. They just keep spending. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter how much money is coming in the door. They just spend whatever they want to spend. It's not like you or I, where we have to live within our means. They don't think that way. They spend whatever they want, and then they figure out afterwards, how am I going to pay for it? And if I can't pay for it all, you know, oh, well. But then all they're really doing is by essentially, as John Oliver was saying, the debt wasn't as big of a deal. They're saying that because they want to have no, no obstacles that can get in their way of things like the Green New Deal and more infrastructure. I mean, this whole infrastructure discussion this last couple of days has been insane. First of all, Biden wants to spend, you know, roughly $2 trillion on infrastructure. And we find out that a third of it's not even infrastructure. A third of it is for, you know, child care and for care for the elderly. And we can we can debate the the efficacy of those programs and and, you know, if those are good policies and if they're really helpful, and if they're moral. Don't call them infrastructure. They're starting to create all these social programs. They're starting to rename them as infrastructure. Like infrastructure are roads, bridges, sewer systems, high-speed broadband internet, airports, dams. That's infrastructure. But now it's suddenly like anything is infrastructure. It's like whatever I want, let's call it infrastructure. It's just becoming an excuse for more social programs. And then, by the way, you know, Bush... Or excuse me, um, Biden wants to spend $2 trillion on infrastructure. How much does AOC want to spend? She said $10 trillion. $10 trillion. They want to spend as much as they can. They don't care how they're going to pay for it. They'll point the finger at someone as the boogeyman. AOC will point the finger at the rich. But even if you tax the rich, how in the hell are you going to spend, you know, get enough revenue to pay for, you know, 10 trillion over, over 10 years, a trillion a year. I mean, you could take almost all of the wealth of a lot of the rich and still not really have it add up to near that or, or only partially close. It, it, it's almost like they just want to spend as, as much as they can without regard to how they're going to pay for it. And then they say they're going to tax the rich, but then they, they can never get it done. Because there's always someone like Joe Manchin or there's a Republican that'll block them. And then so then they blame them. But does that stop them from spending? No, they just keep spending. You know, now they want to do single payer health care. And we go down the list. Our Democratic friends want to keep spending on all these social programs. Our Republican friends want to keep spending on more military. They want to keep spending on more corporate subsidies. They want to spend more on the police state. For the Patriot Act and the NSA and the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and the CIA and all that. The Republicans want to keep spending on that. And, and yeah, the Department of Defense. 
so that we're the policemen of the world and we've got military bases all over the world. They both want to spend crazy money. They like to say that they're different, but they both want to spend money on Medicare. They both want to spend on Social Security. The Democrats always say the Republicans want to kill Social Security. No, they don't. Have they ever tried? Have they ever been successful? No. Even under Bush, he tried to privatize not the whole program, but a teeny tiny slice of the program so that future um, younger people could only invest a small fraction of their withholdings. And it was only a portion of their withholdings. And it could only go into like one of five federally approved mutual funds or something like that. And then meanwhile, the entire balance of all the historical social security earnings, the trust fund, that was still going to remain a government asset. And that was shot down. Republicans didn't even approve Bush's plan. The the Democrats like to say the Republicans want to kill Medicare. No, they don't. In fact, Bush expanded Medicare. Bush expanded Medicare for prescription drugs shortly after he was elected in 2001, 2002. Both Gore and Bush campaigned on that. Then we get into the Obama years and Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House. People are saying Paul Ryan wants to abolish Medicare. No, he didn't. He wanted to change the way it's done. Sure. He wanted to reconfigure it to optimize it. But if you look at Paul Ryan's spending plan for Medicare, it increased dramatically over time at just a slightly different rate of increase than President Obama. So both of these parties both support massive spending, massive debt, but they'll point at the other party and say it's their fault. So the other assumption in the John Oliver video is he says, well, as long as, you know, the interest rates are low, it's okay to take out this debt. But, you know, does that make sense, really? I mean, when you get credit card offers in the mail offering you 0% for 90 days or a year, do you just gobble those up? And just rack up more debt? No, you don't. I mean, if you're smart, you don't. If you've already got a problem, then don't keep adding to the problem. So even though those interest rates are really low, and that is attractive, I understand that. If you're borrowing to legitimately invest into an income-producing asset, like a factory, like a house, low interest rates are great. But you don't go into debt to pay for These BS wars, the police state, the incarceration state, the war on drugs. You don't go into debt just to fuel more redistribution, more robbing from Peter to pay Paul. That doesn't make sense. It's not responsible. It's it's what they're doing is it's they have essentially imagine you have a monthly budget. You bring in so much money and you have your expenses. You got to pay your rent or your mortgage and you got to pay for insurance. You got to pay for food and, and you know, your utilities and you've got a budget. And if every month you're upside down, you're negative. Do you just go and put that on, on a credit card? Is that a good long-term strategy? No, it's not. You have to live within your means. And the same thing applies to government entities because when they don't live within their means, They create greater burdens, more distortions in the economy, and again, a loss of a lot of our rights. And then, but yeah, even if 
even if the interest rates rose to a point that they exceeded the growth rate of the economy, they're never, ever going to stop spending. They're never, ever going to balance the budget unless they are forced to. Now, Clinton was able to do it because I think the Republicans, they still wanted to spend more, but just at a slower rate. But I think Clinton was the beneficiary of the whole dot-com era when people were making good money. In fact, what's interesting about President Clinton, John Oliver talks about how Clinton and Bush raised taxes. Bush, H.W. Bush raised taxes. Remember the whole read my lips, no new taxes, and he violated it. And then shortly after Clinton came into office, he enacted a tax hike like in 93, 94. But in 1997, Bill Clinton lowered capital gains taxes. He lowered the rate on capital gains taxes, which essentially are the you know, the return on investment for investors that helped fuel the amazing growth in the technology sector that ended up driving so much federal revenue that ended up balancing the budget. That's a classic example of how really good tax cuts can make a big difference, but they never look at it that way. They, they, right now it's very, very fashionable to say the tax cuts are bad because we don't want those evil rich people to have more of their own money, their own money that they earned. What they need to do, the bigger problem right now is just to control spending. They got to live within their means. They can't, I mean, even under president Obama, when the economy was growing and supposedly had a really strong economy, Obama to his credit has saw the deficit go down. That was largely because we got, we got out of the Great Recession, right? And the revenue of the federal government returned as the economy got stronger. But you know what happened as we got into President Obama's final two years in office? The federal budget deficit started going back up again because they just keep spending. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's in office or what their plan is. They just keep spending. So, you know, there there's always going to be another economic crisis. There's always going to be another pandemic, another war. I mean, there's going to be something that's going to happen and they're just going to keep borrowing. And then we got Medicare and social security. I mean, social security is not going to be solvent starting around 2033. That's not just the chicken littles that are saying that that's what the board of trustees of social security is saying that they're not going to be able to fulfill their promises. And Medicare is in worse shape. They're not going to be able to fulfill their promises until in the latter 2020s. So we got a serious problem on our hands. These entitlement programs are not fiscally sustainable. And so what are they doing? They're spending on all these other programs rather than trying to solve the drivers of our debt. You know, and Oliver talks about how Social Security and Medicare are big parts of our debt. Well, at least Medicare, he said, Medicare and entitlements. But there's never any effort to really control that. Paul Ryan tried to, but Paul Ryan just wanted to increase it more slowly. But they just keep wanting to spend more on these things, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. I mean, like I said, George W. Bush created the prescription drug plan for Medicare Part D. When Obama gets in office, what did he do? He spent more on Medicare Part D. He filled in part of the donut hole, if you remember that. So it's not sustainable. This, this thing is not sustainable. The economy right now is already a house of cards. The way they're printing money and passing out money, it's not based on sound fundamental financial principles. 
It's not economically sound. It's, it's almost like we're on a binge, like a drunken binge. And at some point it crashes. I don't know when it's going to crash. It's like Oliver said that some of the economists don't really understand it either. But if you're rational, you know, you can't keep doing this. I mean, if, if we could just keep going into debt over and over again, well, then why in the hell are we paying taxes? I know it sounds ridiculous. I know that's a crazy thing to say. But if adding more and more debt is a good thing, and as long as we're spending it on good things, well, then why do we have to pay for taxes? Yeah, I mean, that's the logical next step conclusion. But they usually say, oh, no, we, we still got to pay taxes. But they want other people to pay. <laughs> that's how it always works out. So um, now here's another interesting theory. And Yaron Brook, who's a guy that I follow, um, he has a great podcast, The Yaron Brook Show. And he is a, um, you know, he's a, a finance guy. You know, he, he had a, his, has his own hedge fund and, and he was a finance professor at Santa Clara University. He's a really sharp guy. And he was wondering in one of his recent podcasts, what's going to happen when this whole thing crashes? You know, you got to pay the debt. How are they ever going to pay it? And he used to think, that they would let inflation pay for the debt. They would inflate the, the, the currency, thus making the power of the dollar so much weaker so that the 28 trillion debt or whatever it ends up being after Biden's done in office, that huge amount doesn't feel as insurmountable because inflation has happened. And that's frankly, that's how a lot of other economies have tried to solve the problem when they had huge debt. They're uh, currency inflates and it starts acting like funny money. Yoram Brooks theory is that was going to be the plan. And I had heard that theory from other people, but he brought up something interesting. He said, would they ever default? Would they ever just come to their creditors, whether they're Americans with T-bills or going to creditors in Japan or China or wherever else, would they just say we can't pay? Do you think that would happen? And I know that sounds just utterly crazy. But his theory was this, which was interesting, is that if, if the federal government couldn't pay for the debt, who would get hurt the most? Well, Wall Street would get really hurt, right? Wall Street, uh, the institutional investors are the ones that are buying a lot of those T-bills because they're on the full faith and credit of the United States government. But it looks like at some point, the full faith and the credit of the United States government might not be able to fulfill their promise. I mean, Social Security, we're right on the brink of that, Medicare too. So what would happen? Yeah, Wall Street would take it as a punch in the nose. And who else would, uh, and who would love that? You know, our, our more progressive friends, our liberal friends, our Occupy Wall Street friends, they would love it to see Wall Street get punched in the nose. Just like with all of the, the GameStop stock stuff that was going on, people were digging that, mostly because Wall Street people were suffering. People have perverse you know, ideas. But then who else would, would suffer if the federal government defaulted on the debt? Well, these foreign nations, which, you know, foreign nations have about one third, you know, roughly speaking, about 10 trillion of United States debt. And we'd end up screwing them over. Well, who would like that? Well, all the MAGA guys, our friends on the right, the Trump supporters, the Republicans, a lot of them would be really happy if we punched China in the nose or some other foreign entity. Because America first. 
So then you think, well, gee whiz, if the the left wingers and the right wingers would both be happy if their their enemies would be the ones that would suffer if we defaulted on the debt, maybe that's what's going to happen. Because, you know, if we have inflation, everyone's going to suffer. If we have inflation, we're going to turn into Zimbabwe or, you know, some other crazy nation. So it makes you just wonder, like, when the day comes, we have to pay the piper. What's the what are they going to do? And they're not and they're just making the problem worse. They just keep piling on more and more debt. They spend without regard to where the money goes. And then, you know, then the Republicans will come in, they'll lower taxes, but not by a lot. Like I said, the the federal government revenue goes up. It went up every year under Reagan, except for one. It went up, I think, every year under George H.W. Bush. Federal revenue went up four straight years after the 2003 tax cuts by George W. Bush. Federal revenue actually went up every year under Trump before we got to COVID. Now, we could debate the the impact of the Trump tax cuts, but it certainly didn't cut revenue to the federal government. And I, I personally have problems with the Trump tax cuts because, A, not everyone got a tax cut. Well, not every taxpayer got a tax cut. In fact, some taxpayers saw their taxes go up under Trump. To me, that was wrong. And the other problem with the Trump tax cuts is that there was no commensurate, you know, pay go spending cut to go along with it. He just kept spending more. That's why we went into debt. But it wasn't because there was a, lo- a loss of revenue because revenue kept going up. Most people don't believe that. If you actually look at the data. 2017, 2018, 2019, federal government revenue went up. Now, we get into 2020, and then COVID hits, and everything goes sideways. But prior to that, yeah, and that's that's an interesting note. But, you know, the Republicans might come in. They want to cut taxes a little. Revenue still goes up. The Democrats might want to come in. They might increase taxes a little bit, but it's usually on the other guy. So there's a little fluctuation in tax revenue, but it's not like it's ever really that significant. But does it ever change the way they spend? No, they just spend without regard. And then we get into cases like, you know, now Biden wants a tax increase. Janet Yellen is talking about a global corporate minimum tax. And a lot of other nations are jumping on board with this because they want to stop companies from moving out of the United States and going to tax havens like setting up shop in Ireland, which has a lower corporate tax rate. You know, money goes where it's most welcome. They should lower taxes, and then a lot of those corporations would re-headquarter back in America. But they keep trying to demand money from other people. And rich people, corporations, they're just going to play the game, and they're going to move where they can. Are they going to be able to pass a national minimum corporate tax rate? I don't know. Then besides, who, pay, who pays corporate taxes? You might think, oh, the corporations pay for that. But corporations don't pay. People pay. You know, they might be shareholders that pay for sure, you know, and the shareholders are the ones that get wealthy. But where do they get the money to pay the tax? Well, they get it from you and me when we buy those products and services. The money we spend is the revenue that goes inbound into those companies that they use that revenue, the money from us, to pay the tax bill. So we bear a, part, a portion of that burden as well. Who else bears a portion of that burden of corporate taxes? The employees do, because if the company had more cash available, there's a good chance they might give their employees a a, a raise, maybe even a larger raise than they already are. 
But because they have more of their money taken away in, in corporate taxes, there's less money to go around for other things, including more pay raises for their employees. So people always end up paying for these tax increases. They always want to tax the other guy, right? They never want to tax themselves. So it's just nuts. Okay, so, wow, we're already an hour into this. I I got a few more things I want to get into. And if you've been watching or listening this long, thank you for sticking with me. I want to get into some personal finance discussion. I want to get into um, a little bit about our local school district here in the city of Poway. You know, but before I do, I encourage you to follow me on social media. You can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, and there you can sign up on our mailing list. You can just go to johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe, and there you can sign up on our mailing list. You can connect with all of our social media platforms. You know, we have a Facebook page, John Riley Project. We have the Insiders Group, the Facebook John Riley Project Insiders Group. We've been having a lot of posts there this week. I encourage you to go check that out. You got to answer a few questions to get in, but we let everyone in. So a lot of our hardcore fans um, like to engage there. Um, I'm on Twitter. John Riley Poway is my handle there. And, um, and then on these YouTube videos, I get lots of comments on my YouTube videos. So if you want to continue the discussion, I'd love to hear from you there. Maybe you think differently. Maybe you think we need to be going into more debt. Maybe we, we need to tax the rich. Maybe we need to do things differently, or maybe Biden's got the right plan. All I know is, is that this debt is not sustainable. And it doesn't matter which party's in office, there's always giant debt. And it never stops. And it's immoral, and it's a terrible example. And it's fiscally unwise. So that's going to lead us here into a conversation about personal finance. And, you know, granted, government... Debt and personal debt, they're different animals. I get that. Personal debt can be a very dangerous thing unless you are smart in how you go about it. And like, just like John Oliver said, if you're spending the money on good things, then it may make sense to go into debt. Like if you're going to invest in yourself, then absolutely. Like if you want to go to school to get, you know, a college degree, investing in yourself makes a great deal of sense, especially if you're getting a college degree in a in a major that is a highly marketable major that pays really well, like in healthcare or in, in IT or computer science or some other discipline that typically has high paying jobs. That's a great decision to invest in yourself. Or maybe you don't want to go to college at all, but you want to take classes that just want to teach you very specific skills. Like how to, you know, how to, um, use particular software programs, how to become an auto mechanic. I mean, there's a ton of specialized skills that you can learn a great deal. If you are investing in yourself that can make you more marketable with highly specialized and rare skills, so then you can earn more money, that's a great way to spend and invest in yourself. And like I said, you can invest in housing. Um, you, you know, we, we've done well with our investment in real estate. As much as we criticize the NIMBY laws and the government policies that restrict housing development. It certainly has helped me and my wife and my family. Um, we've seen our homes here in the, in the city of Poway have increased in price dramatically. That's a good thing. Um, real estate generally is a pretty good investment. Plus, that gives you the opportunity to write, to write off part of your taxes by 
deducting your mortgage interest rates or mortgage interest payments. So there's good cases to, to take on debt. In some cases, uh, taking on debt to build a business could be a good a good idea. Now, granted, if you're really starting something big, you want to get investors and really, if you can do it by using other people's money, that's even better. But even for a small business owner, like what I did when I started my business, I invested in myself and it worked out really well. And I'm really happy I did. But there's also bad debt, right? Like credit card debt is usually a bad debt and overspending on frivolous things. Now, I'll just tell you a couple of stories. And when I was in my early 20s, I got out of college and I actually got a paycheck and I was making money. And I, you know, I, I was irresponsible. Um, I would go out with my friends and I was living up in LA at the time. And I lived for a year in Westwood with some UCLA students. And then the second year I lived up there, I was in Redondo beach. So, you know, when you're up in that area, in Santa Monica or down in the South Bay, like Manhattan beach, Hermosa beach, Redondo, there's all kinds of bars and restaurants. And man, we were out like every weekend night and often a lot of the weeknights. And, you know, I wasn't really responsible. And I, I kind of got into a little bit of you know debt with my credit card and it was hard to pay it down. And I learned some lessons pretty quick from all of this. But it wasn't until um, I ended up moving back to San Diego and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she asked me, she said, for the company I was working for, she said, do you guys have a 401k? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. Um, I don't really know much about it. Because, you know, when, when you get a job, usually all you care about is how much you're getting paid. You might care about how many vacation days you get every year. You maybe how many sick days you get. But there's always all these other benefits like life insurance and disability insurance and, and um, even some of the details of the health care. You know, if you're young in your 20s, you don't really pay attention to that. And sometimes the 401k, you're like, oh, that's just some kind of finance thing I don't understand. So she told me you should look into that because she was getting organized herself with her employer. And I went and found, I went over to the HR office and I said, can you share some information about the 401k? And they said, sure. And they laid it out all for me. And guess what? A 401k, besides the fact that you can save money pre-tax, which ends up building compound interest at an aggressive rate, you know, for 40 years pre-tax, which is wonderful. And then like, let's say roughly speaking, if you pulled a hundred dollars out of your paycheck pre-tax, it only felt like around $70 of, you know, quote unquote pain, uh, quote unquote investment. It didn't feel like as much because you were pulling it out pre-tax. So there's a lot of advantages to saving with a 401k. My employer though had a match program and it was really, really good for the first 4% of the money I put in the first 4% of my salary that I allocated to the program, they matched it dollar for dollar. Then for the next 4%, you know, essentially like from five to 8% of my salary, they matched it at 50 cents on the dollar. So they were giving out free money from this. This this matching program was wonderful. It was very aggressive, I think, and considering what else was going on in the economy at the time. So I instantly signed up. And at minimum, I wanted to do as much as I could to maximize the amount of free money. I And I remember I initially started out pulling 8% out of my paycheck because after taxes, it only felt like 5% reduction of my bottom line number of what I actually got at the end of the day in my bank deposit. It didn't feel as painful. 
well, I was feeling good about this. And I started telling my, my coworkers about it and they were, they were saying, Oh, you know, I, I don't know about the 401k. And I, I said, man, the HR office down the hall, go there. You sign a form. They give you free money, free money. And they're like, oh, but you got to save, right? You got to take less out of your paycheck to get the free money. And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I don't want to do that. So what are you talking about? It's not that much. And you can start building a nest egg and it grows quickly. And they're like, no. And these are people that were roughly my age. They were in their 20s, um, in some cases, even in their 30s. But they just never thought about the future. And granted, these people were making decent money. I mean, they weren't loaded, but they certainly weren't poor. You know, they, they were able to live a reasonably comfortable lifestyle, but they didn't save at all. And even when you tell them there's free money, they wouldn't do it at all. So anyways, I ended up signing up for it and it was great. I mean, this was in the early nineties and this is, you know, as the, the, the stock market then, you know, really started to take off in the latter part of the nineties, I did really well because not only was I saving with pre-tax money, I was getting the match with the free money. And then the economy was doing really well. That little bit of savings grew quickly. It grew at a much faster rate than my wife's 401k. And she used to get angry with me. And she's like, I can't believe your company matches and mine doesn't. That's not right. Because my wife has always been a lot more financially prudent than I was, especially when we were young. I've changed my tune radically as I've gotten older. But my wife actually taught me a lot. Um, and then anyways, what I ended up doing is the program at my employer, I think the maximum you could save was, was either like $10,000 a year or 15% of your paycheck or something like that. I can't remember what exactly I did, but I know I maximized it. I did the most that I was legally allowed to do. And I had a friend of mine who worked in the data processing department at my employer. And he was the guy that did the programming for, we had an AS 400 computer system. He did the programming for all payroll. And I remember talking to him about the 401k program and we were just sharing stories. He was a little bit older than me, but he says, here, I want to tell you something. He goes, did you know that when I'm programming our payroll system, I always use you as a test case. I said, really? I mean, we had like 600 employees. He goes, I always use you. He goes, the reason I do is that you are one of only two people in the company that maximizes their 401k. I said, really? That's it? He says, yeah, it's you and the president of the company. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, you know, just like a marketing manager for this company. And I said, you got to be crazy. Now, granted, you know, our company had a range of people that made, some made really good money, some made middle of the road money. And, you know, there were some people that worked at our company that made minimum wage. We had like 600 employees. I said, really, there's only two people that maximize their 401k. He says, yeah, that's why I use you as a test case to test my software to make sure it works right. I'm like, oh, wow, that kind of felt good about it. So I maximized my 401k and I did really well from them. And I remember back then I learned the other story. And if you maybe heard this one about the two twins and this is a good financial lesson is imagine there's two twins and they're 20 years old. And one of them says, Oh my God, I got to save for retirement. I need to put some money away. And just to make the math easy, let's just say they were able to save, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month. That probably seems like a lot, but let's just say a thousand bucks a month. And he put it aside 
every month. Now, the other twin said, no, nah, man, I don't want to save. I want to live big. And I'm in my 20s. I'm with my friends. We're going to go out and have a great time every night. And man, I've got big plans. Yeah, I don't want to save. And so he didn't. But the, the first twin kept saving every month, put up in this case, hypothetically, a thousand bucks a month aside for 10 straight years. And suddenly they're both 30 years old. And the first twin had accumulated a really big nest egg and the other twin had nothing. And the other twin is like thinking to himself, wow, I'm 30 years old. You know, what am I going to do about retirement? I haven't, ta- I haven't saved anything. And meanwhile, the other one is like, ha ha, should have told you. I should I told you all the time. You should have saved. And what ended up happening in this hypothetical story is the first twin that had saved for 10 years. When he turned 30, he says, you know, I'm not going to save anymore. But the second twin said, oh, my God, I need to start saving. And the second twin put aside the same amount of money as the first twin, $1,000 a month. And he saved or she saved from the age of 30 all the way up to 65, $1,000 a month to try to catch up to the first twin who had saved $1,000 a month for just age 20 to 30. Then they both get to the age of 65. The question is, who has the most money? Remember, the first twin only saved for 10 years and stopped at age 30. The second twin didn't save at all in their 20s, started at age 30 and saved for 35 years, same dollar amount per month. It's the first twin that has the most money. When I heard that, I was blown away. And it's because of the magic of compound interest and how that works. It's powerful. And I learned that. I was like, oh, my God, I definitely need to be maximizing my 401k. And I was in my 20s when I was doing that. Probably around age, when was it? Like about 26, 27 is when I started maximizing my 401k. And I'm really happy I did. Now, here's another part, another story on personal finance. And um, there's a friend of mine. um, I went to college with him. And friend, he's, you know, was in our fraternity. He's a good guy. But he's a very, very frugal man, right? He was always concerned about money to the point that he was kind of tight about it, right? To the point that he was sort of annoying about it. Um, but he was really careful with his money. And to the, you know, we, we would mock him a lot, you know, and, and say things about him sometimes to his face and sometimes not. But as I got to know him more. I began to understand it more because I was learning and I was uh, learning how to be better with my money because I wasn't very good when I was in my early 20s. And so I remember being up at his family's home. And this is, again, I was probably like, yeah, 26 years old or so. And his family lived up in, um, in Orange County. And I was visiting their family home. It's a very nice family, kind of very middle-class family. And I was talking to his mom and boy, his mom really started going off on her soapbox, ranting about the importance of financial management. And I'm listening to her and I'm like taking it all in. And I'm also thinking, ah, that's why my friend is the way he is because his mother has taught him all these values. And I was really paying attention to her and she had a lot of great things to say. And she told me, she said, have you ever heard of the book, The Richest Man in Babylon? And I said, no, I haven't. She said, you should get it and read it. And it's really good. And it's you know, about this, about this, um, you know, fictional character that lives in the ancient city of Babylon. And he makes bad financial decisions and he learns lessons and it's all sort of written as a parable. And you learn some really valuable things. 
And I said, you know what? I'm going to get that book. And I still have my copy. And here it is. This is the richest man in Babylon. I'm showing if you're watching the video, you can see it. But it's a book by George S. Classen or Clayson, C-L-A-S-O-N. And gosh, when I got it, it says here on the cover, over 2 million books in print. It's probably got to be way more. The Success Secrets of the Ancients, the most inspiring book on wealth ever written. This is a really good book. And it's not that long. It's like, you know, 130 pages or so. It's, it's an easy read. But I want to share with you some of the things that I learned in this book. And they, they had this, the, what they called the seven cures to a lean purse. You know, a lean purse, you know, someone that doesn't have much money. I mean, how do you solve that problem if you don't have enough money? The first thing they said that you should always do is you should save 10% of everything you earn. 10%. It doesn't matter if you're loaded and rich or if you're middle class or even if you're poor, you need to find a way to save 10%. Because even if you're poor, 10% is really not that much. Now, granted, if you're poor, you need every nickel you can get your hands on, but could you live on 10% less? I, I think a lot of people could if they were, if they had a strategy, but save 10% of everything you earn. And they, they even went a little further in the book, which was interesting. And I always remember this rule is that if you're in debt, you should put 20% of everything you earn to debt and still save 10% for savings and then live off of 70% of your income. That really requires you to tighten your belt. That really requires that you make some big time decisions. You know, in the modern day, it might mean moving back in with mom and dad or getting roommates or moving to a less expensive place or a less expensive city or state. It might require a radical change. But if, if you don't do that, A, you'll never pay off your debt. It'll just keep growing and interest rates or the interest payments will still keep growing because you're only making the minimum payment. But if you make 20% of your income goes to your debt, you know, you'll start paying it down. You'll start seeing that balance go down and you're saving at the same time. So you're not only paying your debt down, but you're building up your nest egg and you're growing your wealth. Now, some people would say, maybe you should just give all 30% of it to debt and not save anything. But the author in the book says, you still need to save. He's got to have cash on hand for like an emergency. You never know. Something could happen. It's a really good lesson. So that was the first one is just start saving 10%. But if you're in debt, put 20% to debt, 10% to savings and live off the balance. The second cure of a lean purse from the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, cure thy expenditures. Don't confuse necessary expenses with desires. So this is me in my early 20s, right? I had the desire to go out every Friday, Saturday night, sometimes every Wednesday and Thursday night with my friends, you know, having drinks and dinner and having a fun time, um, spending money I didn't have, adding to my debt. I made some poor decisions when I was young. So understand what you really need and what is more of a desire or a want. And then if you don't have the money, you don't spend on desires and wants, just spend on your needs and really understand that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people just spend without thinking. And that's a lot of times why they're in a bad situation. That's a lot of times why they have a lean purse. The third rule, make thy gold multiply, invest and take advantage of compound interest. This is the 401k that I told you about. This is not just saving your money, but investing it. You save it and keep it in a passbook savings account right now with interest rates. I mean, you barely get anything. Um, 
But if you are able to find a place to invest the money, you can do really well with it. And there, there are safer places to invest your money. But if you definitely, if you have a 401k plan if you're, at your employer, and definitely if they have a match, definitely do that. Um, number four of the seven cures for a lean purse, guard thy treasures from loss, avoid risk, don't fall for get rich schemes. Yeah, so be wise, be prudent. This is like my friend who I we used to give him a hard time. He was very careful with how he spent his money, you know, sometimes to the extreme, but still he was careful. And he didn't take, he didn't do crazy things. He was careful of how he went about things. And he made wise choices. Because you remember, you know, back when I was in my early 20s, I remember thinking that the, the game that we play is to earn money so you can buy stuff. Earn money so you can buy that car or buy those clothes or go on that trip. It was always driven by that, you know, the kind of this consumption economy, material economy. It wasn't until I was really probably, you know, in my late 20s, I understood the value of saving. And I saved more in my 30s and in my 40s. But really, it wasn't until I was really in my 40s that I really understood that the name of the game is to keep as much of your money as you can. I know it took a long time for me to, to really get it at a, at a really fundamental level. Because, you know, you get busy in life and you're doing whatever you're doing raising a family, you know, buying a house, switching jobs, getting a better vehicle, a better house. And sometimes we can really get, you know, kind of a high on all that. And yeah, we'll be saving for our, our, our 401k maybe, and maybe you've got a savings plan and you're doing that. Some people do that better than others. But I never really thought of it in terms of the goal is to save the money. And keep as much of it as you can, because later on, that money will buy you time. Because later on, you won't have to work as much. Later on, you can spend the money on certain things that will save you time. And by freeing up your time, then you are truly free. I was like, oh, wow, okay, that makes sense. I never really thought of it that way. That the goal is just to keep your money, but ultimately so you can buy time. Because time is the the ultimate um, scarce resource. Time is not replenishable. Time will expire. You don't want to be working every day of your life up until it's the last day of your life. You want to be able to buy as many years as you can to live without working or to really enjoy yourself in a comfortable retirement. The goal is to keep as much as you can so you can spend it on time. It's like, wow. You know, people used to say time is money. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. People have hourly wages and time is money. But when I looked at it that other way, that money is time. Money can buy you time. It blew my mind. And so going back to this, guard thy treasures from loss, avoid risk. Don't fall for get rich schemes. Yeah. Keep as much as you can. That's the goal. Number five on the seven cures for a lean purse, make thy dwelling a profitable investment Buy your home rather than renting. Yeah. 
I mean, with rare exception, buying your home is the right thing to do because not only are you able to save money by being able to write off your interest payments on your taxes, a lot of times the mortgage payment on a house is less than the rent payment on a house for equivalent houses. So your housing payments less. And then on top of it, it's an accrue, it's an asset that's typically growing in value and you're building equity. So definitely, yeah, buy a place. And I know that's really hard to do, especially here in California. Oh my God. They're putting in some new condos here in Poway Road. They're going to start off in the 600 and 700 thousands, like for a two-story townhouse. Amazing. It's hard to break into the housing market, but you got to figure out a way. Easier to do in other parts of the country. And maybe that's how some people need to start off. Number six on the seven cures for a lean purse from the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. Ensure a future income. Have a pension and future retirement income. So, yeah. So, um, my 401k when I retire is going to spin off money kind of in monthly installments. I'll be able to live off of my savings and all of the compound interest and, and the growth and equity that I built over time. Some people have pensions. Pensions used to be a big thing with private companies, you know, back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, but lately a lot less companies offer pensions. If your company offers you one, guard it and treasure it because it's a it's a consistent monthly payment that you're going to get when you retire. In fact, I think the reason that my previous employer offered such an attractive match at the time is because they had previously gotten rid of the pension. And so they knew they had to provide something in return for it. And that's what they did. Because from an employer's perspective, a pension is a very dangerous thing. From an employer's perspective, they have to commit to the guaranteed monthly payment, regardless of what the market does. That's the beauty of a pension if you're on the receiving end. But if you're in the if you're paying for it as a benefit for your employees, I mean, it could be a very dangerous investment. That's why a lot of these companies are shifting and creating 401k plans, which I think makes more sense. It's really fairer, more moral that the individual is saving for their retirement. Especially now in a more dynamic company uh, economy where we all don't we're not lifers for the same company. We don't work 30 or 40 years for a single employer. And there are some exceptions to that rule, but generally that's true. So you have to have your own retirement fund. So yeah, ensure a future income. Now, if you're a government employee, they have great pensions and government employees can do very well. Uh, Government employees know how to play the game to kind of spike their pay at the very end of their working years. They'll crank up massive amounts of overtime. So they get a huge income in their final year. And they, that becomes the, the, the input number to compute what their monthly pension payment's going to be. They know how to play that game. And, you know, from their perspective, they're playing it well. Now, granted, pensions are what's going to be sinking a lot of these government agencies into more and more debt, and including the federal government. All those federal employees probably have pensions. I know California is struggling with this. Our, our school district is struggling with it in Poway. Our city council in Poway is struggling with this. And they've kind of cooked up a couple of innovative ideas of their own where they're putting money and investing it and trying to parlay that into larger amounts of money to help pay for the pension obligation from their, from the government agency perspective, 
the politicians and extremely generous with the government employees to the point those pensions are extremely valuable. But they're really hard on the government agency. But remember, government doesn't care, especially at the federal level. They don't care about debt. There's some exceptions, but for the most part, they're not as concerned about it, especially at the federal level when they can just crank up the printing press. But yeah, if you have a pension, guard it and um, ensure you have a future income. And that's what a savings plan will do for you as well. And if you have a 401k plan and a pension and money invested in other things and, you know, gold, good for you, you're potentially golden. Some friends of ours, um, they're in their mid to late fifties, more probably their late fifties, just retired. They had a pension program with their company, um, saved a lot and, and had the 401k and also did a lot of other smart financial decisions. They are now living carefree, not working at all, and have a tremendous monthly income. It's five digits a month. I won't tell you what the number is, but it's very good. And you're thinking, man, not and not have to work at all. You know, so number six, yeah, ensure a future income. And number seven, increase thy ability to earn. Keep developing your own skills to increase your talents and wisdom so you can earn more. Yeah. Keep investing in yourself. Um, invest in yourself to gain greater skills. Rare and specialized skills that are highly marketable and desirable where employers will pay big money. That's where you need to invest in yourself. So a lot of strategies here in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, in some ways to spend less, in other ways to save more, and in other ways to earn more, both in your working years and in your retirement years. So this is just a really, really good book. And it's entertaining. It's light reading. And, um, and there's a little bit of, you know, if you, if you like history and, and, and learning about you know, Mesopotamia and Sumer. And I remember enjoying that when I was in the fifth grade. But if you really like history, it's it's a fun read and it's a really good lesson. So I just wanted to share that with you. And imagine if our federal government officials followed those rules. But they don't. They don't at all. Okay. So finally, um, I want to just make a few comments about our local Poway Unified School District. And I've commented on them quite a bit in my podcast. You know, again, I was a candidate. I ran for school board in 2014, came up a little short on the election, but I'm still very interested and kind of passionate about a lot of issues. And I live here in the city of Poway, and it's a suburb of San Diego County, a suburb of the city of San Diego in San Diego County. And our school district covers the communities of Poway, Rancho Bernardo, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Rancho Penasquitos, Forest Ranch, Saber Springs, Del Sur, and I think Westwood. Um, so these communities, which are generally, you know, all those other communities besides the city of Poway are parts of San Diego, kind of in the northeast section of San Diego. This is a generally pretty nice place to live, um, and it's a good place to raise a family. And the schools here are generally very, very good, especially academically. You know, the, the, this community, we have very high graduation rates, high percentages of people that go on to college, high test scores. And, you know, it's a reasonably affluent area, which kind of makes sense because 
People that are affluent typically have good education. They instill good values in their children to pursue education. And then affluent people will often pay what is necessary, not, not to, not like to get them into a college in a scandalous way, but a lot of times people that are affluent will pay extra money for their students to get the necessary extra tutoring or extra coaching to be better test takers. Um, and as a result, there's great academic performances that come out of the school district. But financially, the school district is a train wreck. And it's been that way for like, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Um, back in the early 2000s, I remember they wanted to have a school bond. And they wanted to pass this school bond, which is essentially a loan, to pay for infrastructure with the schools, right? When we're hearing that now with infrastructure with Biden and the Democrats, but they needed to fix the leaky roofs and all these, you know, legitimate problems in our schools. But back then, I think you had to have is either 65% or maybe it was two thirds for a bond to pass and they can never get enough. They would get like 57%, maybe 58%. Maybe the threshold was only 60% back then. I can't remember, but I remember they were always in the 50, the high fifties and they could never get enough to pass the bond. So what happened in the state of California? Well, a lot of school districts were having the same problem. You know, our, our, um, they, they, they raise that threshold because they know raising taxes creates a burden on everyone. And they don't want essentially 51% of the people to stick it to the other 49%, right? They wanted to have greater consensus on taxes. That's why they wanted to have like a super majority, which makes sense, really. It's, that's more moral, more ethical, but they can never pass. And so what they ended up doing is all these school districts and other lobbyists were able to convince the legislature or maybe the vote of the people. I can't remember how it went down, but essentially they lowered the threshold to pass a bond and it became only 55%. And remember, they were already getting like 57% or so. And sure enough, then Poway here tried for another school bond and it passed. And I can't remember how much the, the dollar amount was, and but it was a decent chunk of change. And they went into debt and they started fixing the schools. And then they realized they didn't have enough money. They needed to go back to the well again. But they said, this time we promise we're not going to raise taxes. So they thought they could get more people on board with this, Right. They said, we won't raise taxes. But then what ended up happening? We got into like 2008 or so, and I think they passed the bond. But then, you know, all hell broke loose in the economy. And then suddenly it came time to actually do the, do the, the, the bond itself, right? With, with the investors. I, again, all the, the bond people know how it's executed. But they couldn't do it way they originally planned because the whole marketplace had gone sideways with the great recession. So in order for them to fulfill the promise to not raise taxes, but still borrow this money, which they, they legitimately needed for the schools. And they had promised this, they had to come up with another way. And they came up with this thing here in Poway called a capital appreciation bond. And I guess this had been used in other areas. But essentially what it was is that they borrowed the money now and they deferred the payments to not start until 20 years later. So they took, again, in rough terms, 
if I got my numbers right, they borrowed roughly $100 million and they got the money like in 2012 or so maybe. And then they said, we won't have to start paying this back until like 2033 is when payment number one starts. And then it continues for 20 years up until roughly the year 2053. And that was able, they were able to fill their promise. Hey, we, we borrow the money. We're not raising taxes. But then some investigative journalists here in San Diego that work for the Voice of San Diego, which is like an online, lack of a better term, an online newspaper. And they do a lot of really good work in the education market. And one of the journalists did his homework and figured it out and said, oh, my God, they borrowed roughly $100 million. But by virtue of all that compound interest, building and building for 20 years without any payments, and then the payments starting in the year 2033 and going for 20 years into the 2050s, they're going to end up spending almost a billion dollars in order to borrow $100 million now. And quickly, this turned into a scandal. Quickly, this became the billion-dollar bond. And it was outrage uh, throughout the community. People were showing up at the school board meetings with torches and pitchforks. You know, I'm, I'm joking, but they were angry. How could you have done this? This was the stupidest thing to do. Meanwhile, the media catches wind of this. Poway Unified is now a national disgrace. It's on you know, national news. It's on the Wall Street Journal. Poway Unified Capital Appreciation Bonds, the billion-dollar bond. How could these school board members borrow $100 million and stick it to the taxpayers to pay $1 billion, a 10 times factor. It was so scandalous that eventually the state of California made capital appreciation bonds illegal. It got to the point where there was so much fiscal mismanagement, the school board, um, excuse me, the school superintendent was found guilty of embezzling money in the school district from the school district was found guilty in a court of law, was kicked out of his job. Another scandal that was related to this. And he was one that kind of led the charge on this billion-dollar bond. His name was John Collins. So the school district finally comes out of this whole mess, they, they, and they can't refinance the bonds as well. They were non-callable. You know, usually, like, if you have a loan, you can refinance a loan at a lower interest rate. These, it was not allowed to be refinanced. Taxpayers were locked in. It was a disgrace. And, but it got to the point where they figured there's nothing we can do. So they, but you would think that at that point, the school district would have had kind of a come to Jesus moment and said, we got to get our house in order. Um, we have to build trust again in our community. We need to run balanced budgets in our school district, maybe even a surplus to show we're looking out for the taxpayer who just got screwed on the billion-dollar bond. What did the school board do? They ran deficits. This was during the Obama years when the economy was supposedly doing really well. They kept spending more and more. They kept promising more and more pay raises to teachers and school and other union members, classified staff, management, everyone getting big raises, raises on top of raises. You know how the step and column matrix works. They were just just like the politicians in D.C. who were I was talking about earlier. They would spend without really regard to where the money was coming from. Because it wasn't their money. And 
they went deeper and deeper into debt. You know, they had a reserve. That reserve began to diminish and diminished. And I remember telling the school board, I said, you know, the economy's doing well now. What's going to happen when the economy goes in the tank? You guys don't have any cushion. You're running out of a cushion. You're going to be screwed. Well, sure enough, COVID hit. And yeah, now, now they're scrambling. Now they're, they're kind of getting partly bailed out because of all this COVID relief money. They're getting a big chunk of money. I don't know if it was like 60 or $80 million. It's going to save them to a degree. But still, the school, well, the crazy part of this is, is that in 2020, they came back to the people with another bond. And everyone is still bitter about the billion-dollar bond, you know, a little over 10 years previous. Still angry. And they came and they said, you know what? That we have more infrastructure needs to be fixed. We have leaky roofs, broken air conditioners, the children, the children. Now, they could have fixed the roofs and fixed the air conditioning units if they had properly managed their budget and not given out raises, but they didn't do that. You know, routine maintenance shouldn't be something you go into debt for. That's not an investment. Now, if you want to build a new school, okay. If you want to build a new wing on a school or, you know, in the sports world, if you want to build a new gymnasium, if you want to build something new and you want to go into debt for that, you know, we can have a conversation about that. But if you want to just do routine maintenance, like fixing roofs and broken air conditioners and that's not something you should go into debt for, but they wanted to do that. Plus they wanted to build all these other things, but they wanted to essentially take a lot of that maintenance, push it off to a bond where it's more debt and have taxpayers cover it. So it freed more money up in the budget so they could pay the employees more. That's how they play the game. Thankfully, the measure failed. And I talked about that quite a bit in 2020, in early 2020. It was called Measure P in Poway. The point that I'm getting at with all of this is, is that we have the national debt at the federal level, and it's a big problem. I don't think John Oliver took it as seriously as he should have for all the reasons that I outlined previously. But it's this issue of government debt is still an issue at your local level. It, and it's just like a smaller version of the same problem where the politicians want to spend money without regard to how much money comes in the door so that they can take care of their constituents. We see lots of government agencies, especially school districts, do this here in San Diego County. Now, the city of Poway, where I live, you know, I'll give Poway the city government credit. They're generally pretty good. They generally have a very disciplined process. They have citizen oversight. They save money. They pay for a lot of their infrastructure with cash. They're building, they just built a new community center, senior center. I think at least half of it was paid with cash. That's good. That's, I mean, for a local government, it's good. But even now, our local government, the the expenses are now are about to become more than their inbound revenue. And most of that goes to employee costs, pensions, benefits, high salaries. Even the most, one of the more carefully managed cities in San Diego County, even they're running into deficits. So it, this happens all throughout government. And what are they going to do? 
what they always end up doing is coming up with a way to either create more debt or to increase taxes, especially at the federal level or at the state level. The local level, they might cut spending, but more what they usually do is they slow down the growth of spending, but spending still grows. That's like kind of what I said earlier in the John Oliver video. He was saying that Bush and Clinton, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr. and Clinton cut spending. They never did. They increased spending every year. But, you know, in the world of government, if you are increasing spending at a lower rate than previously planned, that's a cut. (laughs) That's the thing is that. When government finances don't use the same vocabulary as we do as regular laymen, or even as we do managing our business, for them, an increase is a cut because it's not increasing fast enough. They also think the tax cuts cut revenue, but they don't. Revenue still goes up, even with many of these tax cuts. But they'll still call it out as a cut in revenue because they're expecting more revenue. Um, so a cut, how do I, how should I say this? A cut isn't, well, spending increases, they call it a cut. And then when spending increases go up at a lower rate of increase, they call that a cut. (laughs) So it's, it's like the math the the accounting terminology with government. It's like this fake world where things don't mean what they say. So, again, I call out our local government agency here, particularly Poway Unified. Just balance the budget. Just live within your means. And I I say the same thing to the federal government, and I say it to both Republicans and Democrats. Live within your means. Set a good example for the rest of the country. Do not immorally shift the burden on the largesse and the wants and desires of people today and pass the buck to people three, four, five generations down the line. It's a problem. Um, I wish people took the national debt far more seriously, but they never do because everyone, not everyone, but most everyone wants more spending on the things that they like, the things that they love. If you're a right winger, you want more money for the military because, damn it, Obama cut the military. He barely cut the military, by the way. They say he gutted the military. Military spending under President Obama, I just looked it up recently. It went down 9% from 2009 to 2017. And because the wars became less, they still continued. President Obama didn't gut the military. But, you know, the right wingers say that. And the left-wingers, you know, of course, they want countless social programs. They're starting to call things like childcare infrastructure. <laughs> They're changing the, the definition of terms. That's, again, it's all theater. These, these government officials, it's all theater. So, anyways, let me finish up this podcast. Gosh, it's almost two hours. Holy crap, Ola. Let me share a couple of, of quotes, and we'll, we'll put this in the can. Um, Number one, from Gloria Steinem. Remember her? She's a feminist, an entrepreneur, big social activist. I think she was one of the co-founders, was it, of Ms. Magazine, a journalist. So, you know, a woman of 
lots of um, wealth, power, and influence, right? I'm stealing that term, wealth, power, and influence. There's a podcast called Wealth, Power, and Influence, and it's run by a guy named Jason Stapleton. It's a great podcast. I encourage you to check that out. But Gloria Steinem herself, a woman of wealth, power, and influence, and she said, rich people plan for four generations. Poor people plan for Saturday night. That was me when I was in my early 20s. I was the poor guy. I was planning for Saturday night and Friday night and sometimes Thursday night. And it wasn't until I kind of got some good advice from my then girlfriend, who's my wife. I learned about the 401k. I learned about the richest man in Babylon. And I began planning for my future. And am I planning for four generations? I'm not there yet. I'm definitely planning for mine and, and my, my children's generation, no doubt about that. And I think I'm raising my children with the right values and discipline that they're going to make good choices themselves. So, yeah, so maybe indirectly I am planning for four generations or more. But, yeah, that's a great one. Rich people plan for four generations. Poor people plan for Saturday night. <laughs> okay, um, another one, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, he said, never spend your money before you have it. A great one. How many times do you see people do that? I used to do that in my early 20s. I, I remember I got my first credit card. I was so excited. I was saying to myself, I can now buy what I want right now, and I can make, I can just do payments. I thought that was a great thing. I was so foolish then. I've learned so much. But federal government, government agencies in general, they do this all the time. They spend the money before they have it. They spend the money without regard to how much money's coming in. That's what Biden wants to do. That's what Trump did. Republicans and Democrats both play this game. Imagine if the government followed Thomas Jefferson's advice. Never spend your money before you have it. That would be so refreshing. Bill Clinton, we talked about Bill Clinton in this podcast. Bill Clinton, who deserves credit for four years of a surplus, but there's the myth that he paid down the debt, which is false. The debt went up every year under Clinton. And, you know, I have, you know, every president's a mixed bag, right? They have their good, uh, good sides and bad sides. Clinton generally was less bad than a lot of the other presidents. But still, he balanced the budget for four years and good for him. And he said, simply put, unsustainable debt is helping to keep too many poor countries and poor people in poverty. 100% right. Nations can acquire too much debt and it can crush them. So far, the United States has been able to avoid this, but we're at $28 trillion in debt and it's going to keep going up. I mean, if if Biden and the Democrats get their way, it's, we're going to go over $30 trillion here in no time. Frankly, if Trump was in office, we'd be over $30 trillion too. Wouldn't matter. But at some point, the thing's going to break. I just don't know when, but it will. But yeah, Clinton's right. Simply put, unsustainable debt is helping to keep too many poor countries and poor people in poverty. And then finally, our final quote of the night. And gosh, we're almost at two hours. So it's a good way to wrap it up. From the musician Bo Diddley. And Bo Diddley said, don't let your mouth write no check that your tail can't cash. <laughs> That's so true. So hopefully we learn some things, talk about some things. I need the John Oliver video if you haven't seen it, and I'll include it in the show notes. His video is actually very good. And I, I'd say, you know, like roughly speaking, about half of what he said I really liked. About 25% of it, I think he was wrong. 
And the other 25% of it, I think he just doesn't share the same opinion as me. You know, that might be, I might be a little too heavy on that. He was probably about 15 to 20% wrong, <laughs> but there was still a lot of mistruths that he said in that pot in that video. That's why I wanted to point him out in this podcast, but I'll, I'll share the notes to that. I encourage you to check him out and his videos are usually really good and they're funny. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's witty. He's a comedian. He's a great writer and he knows how to deliver his message. He's very good at what he does, even though he's left of center. So, Thanks again for listening. Thanks for watching. This is the John Riley Project. It's episode number 220. I'm going to wrap this bad boy up and get on to the rest of my day. So have a great day, friends. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.